is Jesus and how we really need to focus on a lot of our needs. This morning, though, I want you to consider for me very briefly a little bit and throughout the rest of the lesson about what it is to be in want. And we all know this feeling. As kids, we want the new toy. And really, it's no different as we grow up. We want the new technology that we have or the new car or the new house. And being in want can be almost as frustrating as um, being in need. And, uh, the month of March, uh, which was, I guess, a few months ago, I was a little bit in desperate want. And I was going, um, I go to Free Hardeman University um, as a college student. And what we were doing in March was we were going to, for the weekend on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, going to a retreat. And on retreat, we do spiritual devotionals, we play games, we get to know each other a little bit better as social club members. And so you have to pack up all the things that you need for that time. And I had done that. I had packed all my basic necessities, or so I had thought. When I got to the retreat place, which was actually in Arkansas, and if you know where Freed is, it's in West Tennessee, it's about one and a half, two hours, two and a half hours away from campus. And when I got there, I realized I had not brought my homework. And this was a problem because my homework was due Monday at class time. It was due at noon. And it was homework I had actually never done before. It was for science. And if you know what Google Earth is, that's actually what I was doing was I was typing in different Google coordinates and finding different things about different star systems, which may not fascinate you at all, but that's what we had to do for an experiment. And so I had not brought my computer. I had not brought any of that stuff that was due. And so either I was really faced with two choices, or so I thought. I could either A, stay and try to cram on Sunday night with something I knew next to nothing of how to actually operate, how to do it, or B, I could leave retreat and I could miss out on those memories and miss out on those times of spiritual uplifting and go back and try to figure out how to do my homework. Thankfully, though, there was a third option that materialized. And these people that you see on screen here are actually the people who really helped me in my time of want um, that would fulfill the need of um, fulfilling the classroom requirement for the class. These people were actually in that very same science class and they had actually brought their homework to do. And so they provided for me the computer, they provided for me the sheet that we had to fill out, pencil, paper. All of my wants for that class were satisfied and they allowed me to be able to make memories like you see on the left of the screen right there for me to be able to be with my close friends and be able to um, have time to grow closer to God as well. And why do I tell you this this morning? This morning I wanna tell you that there are people that God wants us to be, that he wants us to become. He wants us to be able to be servants for him. And whether that's helping someone out with their science homework, or if it's embodying different characteristics that we're gonna look at this morning, he wants us to be people of virtue and ultimately be people like Christ. This morning, we are going to look at three characteristics that six people embodied in different ways. And we're gonna hopefully be able to take the lessons from their lives and their characteristics virtues that they had and be able to put it into our own lives. So this morning, I want you to turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter five. And we're going to look at, for the first characteristic, faith. And we are going to be looking at the faith that Enoch had that we see in Genesis chapter five, and verse 18. Now, Enoch is probably a guy that you have not heard a lot about, and there's really good reason for it. 
because Enoch in your Bible appears in Genesis chapter 5, and he appears in, Gen in Hebrews, excuse me, chapter 11, and that's all that we read of the man Enoch. But there's something really, really neat about the man Enoch. In Genesis chapter 5 and verse number 18, it says, Jared lived 162 years and begot Enoch. Verse 19, after he begot Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had sons and daughters. Skip down with me to verse number uh, 21, which is um, uh, verse 21. It says, Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. Verse 22, after he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. What's so great about the story of Enoch is that Enoch was a man of God. He walked with God. He had that faith. When there were a lot of people around in his world that were not following after God, Enoch decided that he was going to be different. And the details of how he did that is relatively unknown. But we do know that the Bible records here that he walked with God. Some interesting things to note about Enoch is that he is in the seventh um, in the gene genealogy of Adam and of uh, Seth, which is in seven in the Bible is a perfect number. And the idea that he walked with God is really a beautiful idea. And um, I was reading in the exact words of the Hebrew, the only other time that the phrase walked with God, as it records to Hebrew, there are other phrases in our English that come out to walk with God. That's not the exact same thing. But the only other person that this ever describes is actually Noah which we find later in the Genesis narrative. And there's this beautiful um, thought about when it says that he was not. What, does, what is that really talking about? And really is the idea of Enoch did not die. Enoch was taken by God. And there was this, um, this story that I also read um, in a commentary. And it's this beautiful idea of Enoch walking with God, and Enoch was going a little bit farther than he usually went away from home. And Enoch was a little bit tired more than usual. And instead of Enoch saying, God, let's walk back to my place, God's like, Enoch, let me take you to my place, and you can rest there. And that's just, I think, a beautiful picture of Enoch got to go with God. And he did not have to face death like um, so many other people did. And the only other person that this describes in the Bible is that we see Elijah did not die. And of course, our Lord and Savior, when he faced death, he did die, but he was resurrected to never die again when he ascended back to heaven. So there are only um, three people who, um, there are only two people who never faced death, and there's a, the third who has never died again. Also, though, Enoch appears in Hebrews chapter 11 and verses 5 and 6, which is where our scripture reading came from this morning. We see from this passage that Enoch was faithful to God, that he took the time to be all that God wanted him to be, even if he did not necessarily receive the praise of it on earth, or if we don't know the details of how he did that. In Hebrews chapter 11, it's in verse number 5, it says, By faith Enoch was taken away, so that he did not see death, and was not found, because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony, that he pleased God. That idea, if all that can be said of our lives is that we please God. If we can have enough faith in our lives that so people can see that we please God, then our lives will have been well worth living. And verse number six also is the, the beautiful idea 
that but without faith it is impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him we cannot live as God would have us to be we cannot be the people that God would have us to be unless we believe in God and unless we see that we need to be pleasing to God and that if we are faithful to God that he is also going to be faithful to us and with these characteristics that we're going to look at this morning we're not going to only see that they are passive traits that we should just have in our lives but we're also going to see that these are active traits that not only having these cause us to be someone different but they also cause us to do different actions which we see in the life of Rahab the second things we need to look at this morning is that we need to have faith like Rahab and if you will turn to Joshua chapter 2 and if you um, don't know much about Rahab uh, one good fact to know right off the bat is that Rahab is one of the only women that appear in Jesus genealogy of course in Matthew chapter 1 it's kind of if you want to start reading the Gospels you're like oh I have to read Matthew chapter 1 I have to just read this long list of names it can be really challenging it can be really difficult but what we can appreciate is is God's plan comes to fruition through all these people and ultimately culminating in the life of Jesus. And Rahab's one of those people mentioned uh, in that genealogy. In Joshua chapter 2, we see that they have just passed over, um, or they're about to pass over the Jordan River, excuse me. And Joshua says that we need to spy out the land again. And Joshua's in charge, Moses died, and God is with Joshua. In Joshua chapter 2, um, verse number, let's actually read in verse number 1, and we'll go down to verse number 6. It says, Now Joshua the son of Nun sent out two men from Achaia Grove to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there, and was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut, when it was dark, that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. So what is really happening here in this passage is the fact that Joshua is sending out these men to spy out the land. And what ends up happening is they have to go find some place to hide from the king, from the people who would like to do the Israelites harm. Because these people had seen and had heard the reports that the Israelites had escaped from Egypt and had defeated different people in the wilderness. And this was no small feat that the Israelites got away from Egypt. Egypt at the time was the most powerful nation on the earth. So in order to get away from the Egyptians, in order to almost defeat them as God closed the Red Sea on those Egyptians so that they cannot pursue their Israelites, that was something that was really powerful and that would resonate with a lot of kings. And so they would, the Israelites would, not, would be wanted people. They would want to be, a lot of people would try to wipe them out from the face of the earth. And so what Joshua is saying is, let's try to figure out what's going on in this promised land. And they eventually had to hide. And what Rah when Rahab comes into the story is she helped hide those Israelite spies. And this was something truly extraordinary for her to do. For one, at the time, she was a woman. And a lot of times, 
women were um, not, they were not viewed as high in this society and in this time. And so her taking the initiative to have faith that God would be faithful to her if she took care of his people and that she would face even the death from those people of her own country in order to hide these people, she had extraordinary faith. And she even confronts these Israelite men, which had to take a lot of courage. I see a lot of faith and courage in the life of Rahab. And time will not permit us to look at every single passage uh, that she's mentioning like we did with Enoch. But it's an amazing story ranging from uh, the start of Joshua to Joshua chapter 6. And we see that her faith in God is rewarded in Joshua chapter 6, in verses 22 through 25, when, if you remember the BBS stories of when Joshua and the Israelites march around the walls of Jericho, and when the walls fall flat and they go and take the, the city of Jericho, they do not forget the promise that was made to Rahab, that because she hid those spies and did all the other things that God told her to do, she was, a, be, she was able to be saved. In verse number 22 of Joshua chapter 6, it says, but Joshua had said to the two men who had spied out the country, Go into the harlot's house, and from there bring out the woman and all that she has, as you swore to her. And the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. So they brought out all of her relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel. But they burned the city and all that was in it with fire. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put in the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, her father's household, and all that she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. I think the other amazing part about Rahab's faith is that a lot of her motivation was not self-centered. She was not trying to be saved so that she could just save her own neck, as it were. But she was also looking out for her own family, for her father and for her mother and for her siblings and for all of them, she took the initiative to do something that would have been really scary and really dangerous to do, but she had faith enough to protect them, to protect her, and to have faith in God. And that is something that I think we can truly try to implement in our lives. While we're not going to necessarily try to hide people from the government or from those who would try to kill them or kill us for trying to help them, we can be people who have the courage to perhaps try to listen to someone who is in need of something that's really difficult in their lives, or maybe that they are an outcast in society. Maybe we can have the courage to speak up and mention Jesus in a conversation to others about what do you think that, what do you think about what God has done in this world and what he is promising to do, and have those conversations with our friends, with our family members, and with our coworkers, and all the other people that we encounter, and having that courage and having that faith like Rahab hopefully will embolden us to do that and we can see that she can be an encouragement even to our lives to this day. The second characteristic though that I want to look at with you this morning is one of knowledge and the, the character of Timothy is someone who embodies this characteristic and if you will turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3 beginning in verse number 14 and when we read about Timothy here in his life um, to, at this point, Timothy has come a long way from when this passage was first penned. Timothy, if you remember, um, had a uh, mother and grandmother who brought him up in the ways of the Lord, but he had a Greek or Gentile father, which seems to suggest that he did not have the faith that his wife 
uh, and that her mother had. So it would have been a little bit challenging to try to seek out that knowledge and to have that faith in God when your own father is doing something that is different. And when he, when Timothy is receiving these words, Timothy is not writing these words in 2 Timothy. He's receiving these words from Paul. Paul was someone who kind of mentored Timothy. He brought Timothy up in the ways of God a little bit more. He helped Timothy to become a preacher, to become an evangelist to other people. And he commends, Paul commends Timothy for the faith that he has and for the knowledge that he has in the scriptures. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, and verse number 14, Paul says, But you, talking to Timothy, must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul is um, doing something really, truly wonderful, I think, here. When 2 Timothy was written, it was written near the end, we think, of Paul's life. In fact, we think that 2 Timothy was actually the last book that Paul ever penned. Um, and he was writing these things primarily to Timothy, who was commended for being wise in the scriptures and who was brought up in those ways. And I'll just say a quick thank you to uh, my mom, especially, who took the time to train me in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And she really, in our household, we really emphasize those things which are spiritual in nature. And it helped um, me, even in the rest of my life, that I can build on those things and have further knowledge in Christ. And Timothy had around the same thing. And as we bring up, um, as we bring up families and we, as we are family members to each other, it's important, to, I think, to emphasize spiritual matters, to encourage each other towards spiritual growth. And we do that by being in God's word. We do that by talking to God through prayer. And there are other ways also that we can get closer to God. And he's ultimately the one who we should have the most knowledge of. For one, he has all the knowledge in the world, but also he is the one who knows everything about us. And I think it's interesting that a lot of times we maybe try to figure out things on our own, and we may try to figure out, have knowledge about all these other things, but when we start to neglect our relationship with God, we're really rejecting the source of true knowledge, of true wisdom. We are not going to that source anymore, and we're almost trying to push aside that source into seeing that we think that we know better than God does, and that is something that is truly dangerous when we try to think that we know more than he does or that we know better than he does, and when we conform our lives to his will and see that he is the one who has that knowledge, then we should invest our time in our relationship with him and trying to grow closer to him. The other person who I think embodies a knowledge is Deborah. And Deborah is another woman who I think also embodies a lot of courage like Rahab does. And we remember Deborah probably not for her knowledge, I would say, but probably more for her bravery and courage. But we find uh, Deborah in the midst of another interesting and trying time in the history of the Israelite nation. In Judges chapter 4, and we'll again, I think just start reading in verse number one, so that we can understand the context. The Israelites are going through phases of judges. 
and they are going through people, different nations who are trying to control the Israelites because what ended up happening was the Israelites were saying to God, I think that I know best a lot of times. And so when they tried and go, uh, went to try to do their own thing and become their own people, then a lot of times they, well, a lot of times they fell into trouble. And what would happen is they repent and they call to God, God, we need you again. And then God would send them a judge to lift them from the oppressing nation. And it's this continuous, continuous cycle that we see in the book of Judges. And it's sad to see that really from Judges chapter 1 to the end of Judges, the cycle doesn't necessarily break either. At the very last chapter of Judges, and I forget which verse, but it says that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And if you know anything about, I guess, how social dynamics work, if everyone is doing what's right in his eyes and doing something different than everyone else, and that sounds like a really good idea, well, you do what I, you want and I'll do what I want, and We'll work it out. We'll live together, um, and it'll be fine. But what's ended up happening is instead of comfort, it instead ensues chaos, and that's really what the entire book of Judges is about, and it's eerily similar to maybe some things that we hear from today. Um, but in Judges chapter 4, we're introduced to um, Deborah. In verse number um, 1, it says, When Ehud, which was another judge, was dead, the children of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They did their own thing. They thought that they knew best. Verse number two, so the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Herosheth Hayom. Verse number three, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord for Jabin, had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. It's funny, when we start to do our own thing, and we start to think when we know best, and when someone else thinks that they know what's best and they have the power and they have the control, it's easy to see that people are not really to be trusted with what they know is best. We should really be looking to another source of power and authority because our own flesh is not really a good judge of those things. And we see that in the case of this evil um, oppressor. In verse number four though, now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lepidoth, was judging Israel at that time. Verse number five, and she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. I think that's also very interesting because like I said earlier, women at this time in the Old Testament and in this society were oftentimes um, very, they were told to be submissive to their husbands and to those other people. And there's this, um, there's this idea of that it's because they had to be submissive that they had to listen to their husbands and everything, that they couldn't be their own person. But we find that people like Deborah and people like Rahab, which Rahab was a Gentile, she wasn't a Hebrew, and didn't hear those things. But these, uh, these women were courageous enough to have their own faith and to go and do things in service for the Lord. The Lord. And it says that people came to see Deborah. And it says people, it doesn't say just women. I'm sure there were men and other people who came to her for judgment. And again, what that judgment probably looked like um, we may not be exactly certain, but we see that she was known for her um, knowledge and for her wisdom in that. And if you go on to read the rest of Deborah's story, which I highly encourage you to do that, it does talk about how eventually that she, ha she has the courage, even some more than her male commander, to do the things that would help the people to come from out of that um, oppression by those other people. 
Um, the last characteristic, though, that I want to look at with you this morning, though, that we as the body of Christ um, should try to embolden, that we should use those characteristics in our life towards action and have those characteristics, is love. And love is a characteristic that we hear a lot of about, and there are a lot of different ideas about lo what love looks like and what love should be. Love, though, is ultimately, I think, well, I know, love is ultimately seen in God. And there's other people who also embody this characteristic. And we're going to come back to how God embodies these characteristics um, as we conclude a little bit. But in 1 John chapter 3, we see um, a loving John. And John, if you know about him, I encourage you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. John was not always known, probably, for his love. If you remember in the, the Gospels, when Jesus uh, calls uh, John and Peter and Andrew and James, these guys were originally fishermen, which fishermen in that time were not, you take your boat down to the lake and you drop a reel in and you just chill out for a second. That's not what fishing was in that time. Fishing was instead really a rigorous work. You would go out to a stormy little area um, and you would, throw, you would throw nets onto the Sea of Galilee, that's what I'm imagining. The sea of Galilee was known as a stormy area sometimes. A storm could pop up at any second. And you would just, they would just throw these big nets over trying to haul in some fish. And it took a lot of rigorous work. And I'm sure they were not always the most polished, as we might say, of fishermen or as a people in general. We don't know that for certain. But Jesus calls these people. And we find in these people's lives and also in the lives of others that Jesus, when you spend time with Jesus, uh, it starts to change you a little bit. And Jesus had to work on these guys a little bit. And even um, John and his brother, they came up to Jesus with their mother at one point and tried to ask who was greatest. They had their priorities mixed up. And also, they, um, some people were making fun of Jesus at some point. And John was, John was like, Lord, why don't you strike them down, like in the Old Testament uh, with the prophets, and they'll perish and we'll show them who's boss, basically is what he's saying. And that's not very loving. He wanted to wipe out people. But, and he's called the son, they're called the sons of thunder. But in 1 John, and really in um, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, we see that John becomes this apostle of love. And really, I think if you look at the books of 1 John, we really start to see John more as a father figure. And I can't remember, I'm not sure if we, it may be reported that John was an elder in the church, but even if he was not, I like to think that John was someone who was a mentor to the young people in the church or people in general, how he was encouraging, encouraging and how he tried to show the love that Jesus showed him. Uh, you remember that John was the apostle whom Jesus loved, and he loved all of his apostles, um, but that was um, his title that he was given when he wrote the Gospel of John. In 1 John chapter 3, though, we see how John instructs us to have love for each other and have that love um, for Christ. Um, but I'll just begin reading. In verse number 9, uh, John writes, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Verse number 11, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? 
because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Verse number 13, do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hate you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. I'm going to stop right there. It's amazing to me that a lot of times we're not necessarily surprised. We are surprised, but when we face trials and we face temptations, and when we face different pressures from the world about how things are hard, even when some people don't like us, it's hard to have a good self-image to begin with. We realize the faults about ourselves probably better than anyone else realizes about us. And it's easy really to get down on ourselves, and especially that's true of some of us more than others perhaps. But it's hard enough to have a good self-image about yourself without other people from the world telling you about how bad you are. But eventually we do know that those pressures do come, that there are going to be people who do not like us. And what John is trying to prepare us to say is those, there are going to be people who hate you if what you are doing is of Christ. And Christ throughout his entire life, he lived a life of persecution almost. There was a lot of people who did in fact love God and love Jesus in that sense, but there were also a lot of people who hated Jesus. He wanted to put him to death the instant that he challenged them on their power or on their authority. And by his example of love, by how he became a person that people could go to to trust and to love them. And he had those people hate them. And what John is telling us is if we are like God, if we're like Jesus in those ways, there are going to be people who are jealous of us or who hate us because of who we are and what we do. And he says, don't be surprised about that, but stand firm in your faith and do not hate. Be loving to your brother and to those other people. In verse number 16, though, it says, by this we know love, because he, he there is talking about Jesus, laid down his life for us. And we also, we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, verse number 18, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And I think that's also a very powerful passage to tell us that we don't necessarily just try to have these characteristics and have the knowledge of what we are supposed to do, but instead we're supposed to share those um, share these characteristics, share these traits with other people. We're supposed to have the faith to take, a, take our courage in, other, in order to help reach other people, and we can use our knowledge in that. But also, at the same time, we must use love in order to reach those people effectively, to be as Christ um, would have us to be. And John is a great example of someone who did come from maybe our rough background a little bit and how he became this apostle of love, that he could even have the opportunity and the blessing to, God used him to write his word and to write these epistles about how we should love each other and about how the love of God should motivate us and how we should look to the love of God to help us see how we should love him and love each other better. And the last person um, we're going to actually talk about this morning that we found pages of God's word besides God himself is um, Esther. And Esther is another amazing woman of faith that we see in God's word. And the book of Esther is actually the only book in God's word that does not mention the name of God, which is surprising perhaps. But if you've ever read the book of Esther or if you've ever spent much time in it, you know that 
God and the effect that he has and by his providence, the entire book of Esther is dedicated to that theme about how God loves his people and about how his love can be seen in other people, uh, especially through the life of Esther. In Esther um, chapter 4 and verse number 14, where we'll start, the context to what we're seeing is this is a different time in the time of the Israelites. Um, the Israelites, again, actually enslaved to another nation, um, but they were starting to get a little bit more of freedom. And what ended up happening is the king needs a new wife, which sounds like a trouble, and they're like, I wish that. And what he ends up doing is he holds a banquet or a trial of sorts to try to find us a new queen. Maybe some other guys would like to do that today if they have the money. Um, but that's something... I guess that would be challenging. Um, but the book of Esther, um, eventually he finds that Esther is um, the queen, and she becomes that, and becomes from almost probably someone who is poor, who does not have a lot, to someone who is now living in a kingdom, and in, in the palace, and is now one of the most, part of the, one of the most wealthiest nations on earth at this time. And she's living in relative comfort and ease. There's not much she, that she has to worry about for her life. But what ends up happening is the, the king's assistant, um, Haman, is trying to make a decree to eliminate the entire Jewish race because Haman is another guy who's very power hungry. He is someone who does not like for people to mess with his ego. And there's a lot of other things going on with Haman that are not godly and the least. And so he's trying to wipe out the children of Israel, trying to wipe out Esther's race. And Mordecai, who is kind of a, a father figure, kind of a mentor to Esther, is telling her that she needs to get into action and how she needs to take courage to have an effect to hopefully aid from not having this happen. Esther chapter 4, verse 14, um, some really powerful words here. It says, For if you remain completely silent at this time, this is Mordecai talking to Esther, if you remain completely silent this time, remember she's in, she's in relative ease, she doesn't need anything, Relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan, and fast for me, neither eat nor drink, for three days, night or day, my maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. What Mordecai is telling Esther at this time is that if Esther chooses not to act, if she chooses to not become that person who can hopefully help deter this tragedy from happening, that the nation of Israel is going to survive, that God will be faithful and will take care of them. But what he's basically saying is that Esther, you and your family in your house, you're going to ultimately perish, but you may be put in this place of power, who knows? Out of all those women who were chosen, maybe God allowed you to come to this place so that you could help this from happening. And she eventually decides that she is going to put her love for her family, love for her nation, and love for her God um, to help his people and go before the king. And what she does say, if you uh, notice, in verse number 16, it was illegal at this time for, uh, for anyone to go before the king if he did not request your presence. And you could be instantly killed, just no questions asked, which seems kind of crazy to us today um, at a time, which I don't know with COVID and all that happening, but there was a time in our nation's history which you could go to the White House 
uh, which there were places that you were not allowed to go, but you could be in our, um, our place of power, the strongest person in power in our nation. You could go to their house and be there and see the things that were inside there, but that was not the case at all uh, for this nation at this time. Um, and even if you, if you think about it, the king is the husband to Esther. Um, this is an intimate relationship, but even between them two, if he did not say, hey, I want you to come in later, she could still be killed, even though she is the queen itself. So the stakes are very high, and Esther asked for prayer. She asked for fasting uh, so that hopefully this thing would come to pass, that she would be spared, that she has that faith in God. In verse number five, she eventually takes this love into action. Verse number one, it says, Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, across from the king's house, while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house, facing the entrance of the house. If you can picture that in your mind, that's awesome. I hope you have. Uh, I am not great with pictures in my mind, but that's a really detailed um, saying. In verse number two, though, it says, So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, which that's how it transitions from that to what we're about to read is really quick for us. Could be have been a lot longer for Esther. What is he going to do? What is he going to say? Or how is he going to take this? Pick up with me. So it was when the king saw Queen Esther saying in the court that she found favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter, which is basically meaning for I approve that you can come into my presence, that you can talk with me. The king accepted um, Esther in this moment. And we see, ultimately, there's many thing, other things that play out um, in the rest of Esther. And I encourage you, again, to read this account of faith. It's very encouraging and very um, powerful about how she acts out her love. But eventually, she, by God's power, by his grace, was able to help uh, save these people. This morning, I want to leave you with the fact that we should be a wanted people. God wants us not only to be his children, but he also wants us to be servants. He wants us to embody these characteristics and many others in order to help serve each other and help serve him faithfully. In Matthew chapter 25, um, the context is there of the parable of the talents, and we're not going to go extensively into that this morning, but what is, in summary, basically what is happening is the master, which can be a metaphor for God, has entrusted his servants for, with his wealth and how they can increase and they can use that wealth to further his uh, influence and his power. Um, Matthew chapter 25 and verse number 21, though, when these servants did faithfully they what they were supposed to do, when they served effectively, it says, Jesus is talking but in this parable, he says, his Lord, talking to the, about the servant, said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I'll make you a ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. If we, at the end of our lives, can be said to hopefully and effectively um, be righteous servants, then our lives will have been well worth lived. The other passage I want to point you to is Matthew chapter 23. In verse number 37, we see that... God and Jesus, not necessarily in this passage, but throughout the entirety of the Bible, are the ones to embody these characteristics of godliness. And God is not just some greedy person who wants us to have these things so that he can get some pleasure and benefit out of us and try to control us. 
what he wants is he wants what is best for us in order to help each other. And we really, in, verse, in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37, see a very humane um, Jesus about what one of his greatest wants is. And he, picks, uh, he paints the picture of he's standing on the mountain of this hen um, gathering her chicks around her uh, under her wing. Now, I'm not going to put my um, head or anything under this guy's wing at all this morning or there at all. That's, that seems weird. That seems a little bit of a strange idea. But what the picture that Jesus is trying to bring here, in all seriousness, is he is telling us that for the nation of Israel and for us this morning, he wants us to be his children. He wants us to be his servants. He wants to take care of us and protect us and do all the things that we have to do uh, for him to be those effective servants. This morning, I want to ask you a very um, easy somewhat question to answer, yes or no. But it's a very powerful question and one of the most important questions that you will have to answer for in your life. And that is the fact is, are you a child of God? Have you done those things um, to become his child? And that's not necessarily just by living a good life. Um, This morning, there's more to that than becoming a Christian. You see on screen here that you must hear God's word. You must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You must confess that belief before others. You must repent and turn away from your sins and be baptized in water. And... um, I'm out of that grave, living faithfully for the Lord by embodying these characteristics and by embodying many more, living as a servant for Christ. And if you've not done that this morning, we would highly encourage you to do so before it will be too late for uh, the Master would have come already. We encourage you to do those things. This morning, for those of us who are Christians, I have been speaking primarily to us. And I want to encourage us that while it's easy for some of us, it's easy for some of us to say, I already have a lot of these characteristics, and there are I've got I've got it down. It's somewhat maybe somewhat easy for some of us to say that, but there's also some of us who say I have come nowhere close to that, and I still need to improve. I want to encourage us that there's a middle ground between those two extremes. That hopefully in our lives we have tried to work on these things. We've tried to be as Christ would have us to be, and I know that it says in First John chapter one that if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, continues to cleanse us from all sins. All I'd encourage you this morning is to not give up, to continue to try to serve God faithfully and to serve his people faithfully. And that we see when we have that faith and when it encourages us and emboldens us to do those things, that if we let God use our lives for him and for his service, that we can accomplish great things. And it can be either in small ways, um, like trying to help people with science, or maybe it could be even in some great ways, like saving an entire nation of people like we see in the book of Esther. But whatever it is, we can be a help to, uh, a help to other people. This morning, if you have a need, why don't you come? I'll stand singing together.